The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Latara Smith will speak with her guest, Michelle Smith. Latara is with the KC Freedom Project. Michelle is with the Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Their topic is a new bill in the Missouri House relating to the use of confidential informants, HB 1311. The bill was read again to the House on March 1, 2023. The proposed bill may be called Noel's Law. It would require that a law enforcement agency that uses confidential informants shall adopt policies and procedures that provide reasonable protective measures for the informants when a law enforcement agency knows or should know of a risk of threat or harm to the confidential informant as a result of his or her service to the law enforcement agency, and to refer prospective and current confidential informants who are known to be substance abusers or to be at risk for substance abuse to prevention or treatment services. Informants are either individuals who have been charged with their own crimes and have agreed to cooperate with law enforcement in the hopes for reduced charges or sentence based upon that cooperation, or they are people who are paid for their information and access to criminal groups or activities. The proposed bill will also provide protection and treatment services for persons who provide testimony to law enforcement. The proposed bill provides even more incentive for persons to provide false testimony to law enforcement, but false testimony can result in the wrongful conviction of another. Latara and Michelle welcome listeners to call in and have their opinions and experiences heard on live radio. Please dial 816-931-5534 if you'd like to speak on air. We bring you vital information underserved or ignored by mainstream media. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. We have Latara Smith-Carnes and Michelle Smith on the line. Hi. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Thank you for, for having me today. Everyone, thank you for tuning in to KKFI 90.1 FM. I'm your host, Latara Smith-Carnes. And unfortunately, let me uh, make make our listeners aware that we will not, uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, be able to have a call-in show this morning because I'm actually having to call in and obtain using one of the phone lines. But we're here, amen. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show here with me today. And I know that we kind of text this morning about um, the, the, the bill that we're going to be talking about. And it's not, it's not doing too well right now. But why don't you start off telling the listeners who you are, what you do, and then go into telling us a little bit about this bill that actually we just found out is kind of stalling at this point. Um, well, no problem, um, Latara. Thank you for having me on. So um, my name is Michelle Smith, and though I am um, the co-director at MADP, which is Missouri Sabasa Death Penalty, that is true. Uh, but this particular work that I do concerning um, 
legislative advocacy around wrongful convictions and around prison issues, I do under a different umbrella, and that is my organization called Missouri Justice Coalition. So I founded this organization approximately a year ago because I saw that there is a gap, there is a space where um, the criminal justice reform movement in Missouri was not focusing on legislative reforms concerning our prisons and also was not focused on advocacy concerning those who are wrongfully convicted. So I founded Missouri Justice Coalition to fill that gap. And, um, you know, that is the mission that I'm on currently to amplify these particular issues. And, yes, <clears throat> you are correct. The informant bill um, is not moving. And I will say, although there is a version of it filed in the House, which is under HB 1311, the original bill and the most complete bill is actually a Senate bill this year, and it is Senate Bill 489. And... That's what's filed um, back when session started in January. And it is not picking up the steam that it needs to. And honestly, that is because our system is very um, hesitant to actually make reforms that help individuals. You know, um, the reforms that help the states or, you know, that uh, come down harder on people those definitely get, gain a lot more support than when you're actually trying to pass a law that helps individuals, that helps the most marginalized people, that helps those who are innocent and in prison. And so, again, it's very difficult to get, you know, a lot of uh, support from those in power to actually right the wrongs of our system, and that's what's going on currently. So, unfortunately, the bill is basically at a standstill, but, you know, there's always hope, right? And also there's next year. You know, we will keep pushing these issues concerning people who are wrongfully convicted because it is an epidemic in our society, our state, in our country that innocent people are incarcerated um, that never committed any crime. Yes, I agree with you. And, you know, Michelle, um, I, I hate to hear that the bill is actually stalling because it's most definitely needed not just here in our home state of Missouri, but we need it in all states. And there are some states with the bill uh, that actually it, it, it's a law now. And, um, you know, it, it's needed because many people don't understand that the use of a confidential informant in many wrongful conviction cases, um, it's happened. Um, and, and let me say this for our listeners. Um, the use of a confidential informant, it's not a bad thing if there are certain things put in place that would govern the use of a confidential informant. I think one part of this bill um, spoke about using confidential informants uh, in the capacity to uh, testify against individuals, especially when this is the only evidence, okay, that they have towards these individuals is the, the, the testimony of a confidential informant. Um, and when we have the, te the, the testimony of a confidential informant, uh, and we know that the confidential informant, let's say, has a history of drug usage, has a history of being in and out of jail multiple times. I've seen this as an investigator, okay, Ms. Smith. I have seen uh -huh. this reading cases where the, the authorities will use a confidential informant that the police have developed a relationship and a rapport with 
um, industry to this individual, you know, these individuals being drug users, drug addicts, prostitutes, and they prey on these individuals and their, you know, uh, vulnerabilities of, of being a drug addict and having maybe pending cases. It could be petty cases as larceny. It could be just, just any type of criminal cases. And, and they use those criminal cases uh, and the fact that they have them to manipulate them to giving false testimony, which leads to wrongful conviction. You know, um, I know that you are also an advocate for individuals and you work as well, um, working with individuals who are innocent, wrongly convicted as far as being a voice and advocating for them. Have you come across cases where a confidential informant was used in that capacity where the police actually took advantage of, 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 of their their illnesses or their disabilities, because to be a drug addict is a disability. Have you come across cases, or you know, are I the only one who has come across uh, these types of cases? Very much so. Um, the the way that an informant is used, and you know, there are, like you said, confidential informants out here on the street, but there are also people who are incarcerated as well that serve as informants. And a lot of these cases, that person is, um, you know, going through some type of issue where they have no choice as far as the police let them know. They have no choice but to um, say, you know, that someone else did something because they're going to catch a break. Um, there are people who have their charges dropped, you know, when they become an informant or if they are caught with a small amount of some type of, you know, drug that they get those charges dismissed. So it's always a situation where there's a lot of coercion involved from the police and from mm -hmm. the prosecutors. I have definitely seen, um, seen that situation. Um, one case I know the uh, informant actually wants this person, and this was, you know, rare, when this person came to court, he actually said on the witness stand, um, this person didn't tell me this. So, of course, the police had him make a statement saying this person told me they killed somebody. But once the man got to court, he said, listen, I don't even know that person. He didn't tell me anything, but the police threatened me with the case. They said if I didn't say this, they would charge me with it. And I'm already in prison, and I don't want to be charged with a murder case I didn't do either. So I really had no choice but to agree with them and say, yeah, that person told me he did something. And, again, the person, the informant did not even know this defendant. Um but, it, but he knew the victim, but he did not know the defendant. And so situations where there's a lot of coercion, there's a lot of manip manipulation, there is a lot of um, treating people like, you know, they're, they're only there for to, to be your witness or to a gain that you need, not trying to help them get off of drugs and not trying to actually help them with whatever, whatever illness or whatever situation they're in. It's only about making sure that they can come to court and say what I need them to say. So, yes, these informants are often uh, manipulated and coerced, uh, but some of them do it for other reasons, like monetary. Um, I've read cases where informants have traveled the country and, you know, being an informant because it pays well. Uh, there was actually a story some years ago about an informant out of California who was actually in a gang. And so this person would travel around the country you know, connecting with gang members um, of uh, all over the nation. And when he would, you know, get in, uh, get arrested for anything, he basically would say, oh, that person told me he did something. 
And the police paid this person over $100,000. And it's actually, you know, it's a it's a, an investigative report. And over years, he was paid over hundred grand to be an informant. So there is a coercion, there's a manipulation, but there's also that quid pro quo, meaning, you know, um, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You know, I'm going to give you some money. Yes. You're going to say that you saw this person do this. And I want to, 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 to go back and say, yes, there are times where, informants or witnesses are necessary. And, and this bill does not say that the police or the prosecutor cannot use informants. What the bill says is if they use these particular people who have a some type of a benefit from testifying, that there are certain uh, criteria in place. Number one, um, transparency. So if this person has been an informant on other cases, like the person I say that went around the country, Prosecutors were never um, um, uh, made to actually tell the court or tell the jury that this person has informed on 10 other cases. You know, it, it, the jury assumes that this person is involved in this particular case and knows what's going on, and they're just telling what they know. And that's not that's not true. You know, there are people who travel all around just being an informant on different situations. So one thing is would be the transparency around, you know, what this person has said in the past and what they have, you know, testified to. Uh, previously, and another um, point of of the bill would actually be requiring something called a pretrial hearing, which basically says yes. the yes. judge would sit down with the informant and confirm that the story the informant is giving matches the evidence. And that's not a that shouldn't be a heavy lift if you're saying that you know this a person told you that they did you know some crime and in, in the situation and, and where it happened at. The judge would just simply sit down and verify that your story matches the evidence, and a lot of times that's not the case. And so things and like the pre-trial hearing me, me and things this, like transparency would, would definitely be something that would stop so many people from being wrongfully convicted. And and you know what? I just about jumped out of my seat just now, and I didn't mean to cut you off as you were closing your mm -hmm. your sentence there, yeah. but I literally almost wanted to jump out of my seat because you said something that was so key. And as an investigator, I see this so much. Utilizing a confidential informant whose statement does not coincide and go along with the actual physical evidence in the case. And I see that so many times. And, you know, um, it's very important that, you know, people really understand this is one of the main reasons why we have wrongful convictions. This is one of the main reasons we have wrongful convictions because of the use of a confidential informant that the government used that they very well knew, knew absolutely nothing about what they were using them to say. And when this happens, okay, I, in cases, even in my husband's case, Keith Carnes' case, my husband had a confidential informant in his case that the government withheld. And this is actually what led to the violation of my husband's constitutional rights, which resulted in a Brady violation, which in return resulted in the Missouri Supreme Court overturning his wrongful conviction and releasing him on April 11, 2022. So for people who are listening, I can say personally, not just as an investigator, but on a personal level, 
I can verify how the use of a confidential informant who the courts knew, the prosecutors knew, the police knew, their statements did not line up with the actual physical evidence in the case. I can tell you, it runs lives. It runs lives, and it takes decades of lives away from innocent individuals. Now, something else, Michelle, that I noticed when you sent me the bill, you're so good about sending me everything. I just love you. When you sent me that bill, I was reading that it also talked about informing the family members of victims, okay, Uh that they're going to use these confidential informants. Because what happens is when when they're actually have pending criminal cases of their own and they come over here and give false testimony as a confidential informant and it results in another individual getting uh, locked up for something, then they come back and they get a time cut. And you know what? That's not fair, a time cut on the case that they have pending. And that's not fair to their victim. What do you think about that? You know, that, and that is something that I, I tell people all the time, the prosecution, right? People say the prosecution is the, the victim's attorney and then the, you know, the defense attorney is for the defendant. That's not the case. The prosecution is the state's attorney. They're not for the victim. They honestly don't care, honestly, about, you know, your situation. They are there for the state. And a lot of times a prosecution will give a confidential informant or a jailhouse informant a break on their case that got, you know, got them in jail so they can tell on someone else. And that is not fair to the victim of that informant. You know, say, for instance, an informant um, has a case where they robbed somebody and got, you know, five years in, in prison. Um, and later on down the line, you know, a few months, they decided to be, you know, snitch on someone else. And the prosecutor says, okay, well, I'm going to take your five-year sentence and cut it down to two, right? They don't tell that yes. person's victim why they got all this break on their own case because the victim of that robbery feels like, you know, my, the person who did me harm got five years in prison, and that's what they deserve. But when that, when that informant gets a break because they, you know, t- telling on someone else, their victim is basically, like, not cared about. The prosecution isn't concerned about that victim's family and the fact that, you know, they, they felt like that sentence was um, proper for what happened to them. So I really try to stress that the prosecution is not the victim's attorney. The prosecution is the state's attorney, and they're going to do what's best for the state in that particular moment. And if in that moment it means giving, you know, the person who harmed you a break on their case because they're telling on someone else that is just what the prosecution is going to do. And so that is very important to put that part in the bill that says if an informant gets a break on their own case, their victim has to be notified. You know, your, your, per, your perpetrator, your person who victimized you and your family is getting a break, not because, you know, they, um, did so well in prison or any other reason other than they decided to snitch on somebody else. So that is something that the victims need to know. And currently that is not necessarily the case. And I think that is a very important piece of this legislation to make sure that the victims of that informant are given the same rights and the same compassion and the same courtesy as anyone else that that was victimized. And so, yes, that is a very 
very important um, aspect of this particular legislation. So this law has several different aspects. Um, and like you said, it's necessary, it's needed. Um, right now, 10 states have informant uh, reform yes. legislation, and we, you know, really need to get it here in Missouri because, yes, 60 over 60% of the people who are exonerated. So once a person is exonerated, you know, you can go back and look and see why they were originally wrongfully convicted. Like what happened, what went wrong to get to that person's wrongful conviction. And in 60% of those cases, it was because an informant came to court and perjured themselves. That's nationally and in Missouri. And in Missouri, we've had 56 exonerees. The most recent being from St. Louis, uh, Mr. Lamar Johnson. He was actually exonerated uh, February 14th of this year, and he became the 56th person exonerated. And of those 56 people, I believe like 35 or 36 of them, they were incarcerated because of an informant. People like, you know, your husband, Keith, people like Lamar. There were actually um, two informants in Lamar's case. Um, one was a jailhouse informant, and one was actually – um, a victim in the case, he was on the, he, he was not physically harmed, but he was there when someone else was killed. And he became an informant because the police started giving him money and basically started telling him, oh, um, Lamar did it because they, they didn't like Lamar and he had been in trouble as a teenager before. So they felt like he was the one who did this particular thing. So they started telling this informant, oh, it was Lamar. You know, it was when they did the lineup, they told him which number to pick. And they, you know, and, and he did. He basically at some point said, you know, um, he picked Lamar out. Um, he didn't pick him out in the lineup. Later on, after the police harassed him, he said, well, which number was it? And he said it's number four. He said, okay, number four, because he was tired of the police harassing him about the fact that he couldn't pick anyone out of the lineup. But he got, he got money. He got money. He got charges dropped. You know, he got pulled over by the police at some point. Uh, for something different, and he told him, oh, I'm already working with the police. Call this police, and he'll, he'll vouch for me. And that's what that policeman did and let the man go. So he got a lot of benefit from being an informant against uh, Lamar Johnson. So this case, this issue is exactly why the most people are wrongfully convicted in this state and in this country, and we need to do something about it. We need to stop assuming that, you know, the courts are foolproof, that prosecution is only out for justice, we need to let go of those assumptions and, and focus on the reality that our system is flawed, that our system is failing us, and that we need to stand up and say we are, you know, we're not going to have um, these issues, particularly wrongfully convicted people. Like, innocent people should not be in prison. Let's start there. You know, once we start there, we can go to the next step. Yes, because if you think about it, and I know we're, we're kind of winding down on time for the first part of the show, so I'm going to say something that's really juicy for our listeners when we come back on the second half. But I, but I want to say this. I totally agree with everything you just said. And, and, you know, one thing, too, that we have to look at is we need to look at our prosecutors who are allowing this to happen, you know. The confidential informant couldn't do what they do if they weren't assisted by one of the government officials, whether it was the prosecutor or the police or both of all of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a, I call it the little demonic trio, trio or duo, whichever one it is. But this is what happens. And it's so sad because our educated, trained <laughs> College degree, law degree prosecutors 
will sit on the stand in court and say, we didn't know anything about that. We couldn't see that. But you have a police report. You have paperwork in your discovery where you can clearly see that what this witness testified to is contradicting to the evidence in the case. But they will sit there and they will still use them, even when they can see there's false information in the police reports. And what people don't understand is our police officers, Every police department has policy and protocol and procedure there to follow when it comes to police statements and, and witness statements, I mean. And, and, and if the witnesses say anything in the statement that's not true, they're not supposed to use the statement in any capacity. But we'll come back and we'll discuss that on the second end of the show. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. The first part of our show, I'm Latar Smith, your host of the Casey Freedom Project, and I am interviewing Michelle Smith. We're going to come back here on the second end of the show. We're going to finish wrapping up talking about the use of confidential informants and then we're going to go into talking about what's also needed which is um, a law a bill in reference to utilizing the conviction integrity units thank you everyone for tuning in we'll see you shortly eco radio kc a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet hear from regional and national guests find out about upcoming events and learn how to keep yourself and your family well tune in each week from six to seven on monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts Did you know that your smart speaker can play your favorite community radio station too? Just say, play KKFI to your smart speaker and stay tuned in to your favorite shows. The future is truly here. Now the calendar for the week of March 6th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free legal assistance to low-income and vulnerable Jackson County homeowners who fall behind on their payments and face foreclosure. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. Tuesday, March 7th at 10 a.m., Missouri Moms Demand Action Advocacy Day meets at the state capitol in Jefferson City, Missouri. More info on Facebook at Missouri Advocacy Day. Wednesday, March 8th, 6.30 p.m., Johnson County Moms Demand Action March in-person or virtual meeting will be at Shawnee Mission U. Church, 9400 Flum, Lenexa. Monday, March 6, between 6.45 and 8.45 p.m., the Kansas City Criminal Justice Task Force has a meeting via conference call. If you'd like to join in, you can call 605-313-5573, and when asked for the code, please enter 454777. Tuesday, March 7th, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., Missouri Day of Empathy 2023 will kick off the inaugural Legislative Advocacy Day focused on centering criminal legal system directly impacted people. You can meet at Missouri State Capitol, 201 West Capitol Avenue, Jefferson City, Missouri. More info at mobilize.us. 
Tuesday, March 7th, 6 p.m., Perspectives on Ukraine, the Impact of War on Local Communities with Dr. Oleksandra Wallow will be in the auditorium of Lawrence Public Library, Lawrence, Kansas. Dr. Wallow will share her unique and personal perspective on the current conflict and its impact on Ukrainian citizens. Tuesday, March 7th, 6.30 p.m., the March membership meeting and KC Council endorsement vote with Our Revolution KC will meet at 5601 Locust Street, Kansas City, Missouri. Wednesday, March 8th, 11 a.m., Clean Slate Advocacy Day hosted by Empower Missouri will meet at the Missouri State Capitol, 201 West Capitol Avenue, Jefferson City, Missouri. You can find more info at empowermissouri.org. Wednesday, March 8th, 9.30 a.m., the 7th Annual Working Women's Lobby Day will meet at Bones Banquet Center, 210 Commercial Avenue, Jefferson City, for breakfast and speakers, then go to the Capitol to lobby with representatives. For more information, please contact Mary Berry, Missouri AFL-CIO, at 314-420-8095. Wednesday, March 8th, 6.30 p.m., District 4, and Thursday, March 9th, 6.30 p.m., District 5, there are virtual Kansas City Commission candidate forums hosted by the League of Women Voters. To register, you can go to lwvkc.org. Friday, March 10th at noon, Empower Missouri's Friday Forum is a virtual event, and the topic is Universal Free School Meals. More info at empowermissouri.org. Saturday, March 11th at 10 a.m., there's a legislative coffee at the Johnson County Library, Gardner, Kansas, 127 East Shawnee Street, hosted by the League of Women Voters, Johnson County. Registration is not required to attend in person. Saturday, March 11th, noon to 2 p.m., Mothers of Incarcerated Sons and Daughters invites you to an Eliminate Fines and Fees rally at Plexpod Westport, 300 East 39th, Kansas City, Missouri. You can reserve your seat for free lunch and opportunities to change oppressive systems and laws on Eventbrite. More info at misdkc.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page, as well as the Jaws of Justice Radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. Now, let's return to our program. Thank you, everyone. It's Bahar Smith, your host. I'm back, and I have Michelle Smith back with me on the second half of the show. Michelle, are you still on the line with me? I am. I am here. Great, great, great. Well, you know, I, I want to leave off where we were. And for those of you who just may be tuning in, on the first half of the show, uh, Michelle and I were discussing um, um, a pending a bill uh, that ended up stalling in reference to uh, the use of a confidential informant in criminal cases and how here in Missouri uh, we need that law, as in 10 other states have it, but we need it here because we have so many wrongful conviction cases here in the state of Missouri and, and, and that have been overturned, as well as we still have many individuals who, in prison who are claiming their innocence who had a confidential informant used in their case. Michelle, when I was cutting off, when we were ending the, the first part of the interview, I went into talking about the police department and how, um, you know, they have 
policy protocol and procedures um, that have been set out for them when it comes to using a witness's statement. And I can tell you uh, the Kansas City's policy, Kansas City Police Department, uh, which is located here in Jackson County, Missouri, um, they have a it's there. I read it when I was going through their uh, uh, their their rules and regulations when I was looking into Keith's case, and um, it was there. And it said, you know, you can't use uh, uh, this a report if any part of the report was not true. And I don't think people understand how manipulation of the paperwork and the reports and things as such. It it always happens when there's use of a confidential informant when there is, when you can see the confidential informant has a, you know, criminal history going in and out, in and out, you know, petty crimes, major crimes, multiple crimes. You know, it's never an issue of the courts or the government questioning the confidential informant's credibility when they take the stand on testifying the case. But when that same confidential informant comes back two decades later and say, you know what? They pressured me. I lied. I feel bad. I can't do this anymore. It's weighing in on my health. I've got to tell the truth. They told me to say these things. When those same confidential informants, Michelle, take the stand and tell the courts that they lied, the prosecutors, the same prosecutors who used them to give, to allow them to give, oh my God, to allow them to give these statements, will turn around fight against their recantment statements and say, you know what, they either lied then, they lied now, or they're, they lied both times. Why is it an issue uh, that if they're credible now that they're coming and saying, hey, Mr. Prosecutor, hey, Mr. Police Officer, you guys used me and you had me do this. Why is it a question of that, of their, their uh, credibility then, but it was never a question of their credibility when they put them on the stand. I don't think people know how this goes in our little wicked criminal justice system here in the state of Missouri. I just don't know. Have you seen cases somewhat like that? Yeah, Latara, um, I have. And, and I do actually know why that happens. Um, the reality is in court, there is an imbalance of power. There is one side that gets the benefit of the doubt, and there is one side that does not. And in a criminal trial, the, the side that gets the benefit of the doubt from the judge and from the jury is the prosecution. And the, the side that, you know, gets more scrutiny and, you know, gets looked at he- more heavy and et cetera are the defendants. And so when, when you're saying how an informant who has a criminal history comes in, um, as a prosecution witness and is saying what the prosecution wants it to say, wants them to say, you know, they get the benefit of the doubt. Their criminal history is basically, oh, you know, they, they just had some uh, lifelong issues or childhood issues that they got mixed up with these things and they're good people. So that confidential informant or jailhouse informant will get every benefit of the doubt and they'll get all of, you know, the benefits um, and that, that, you know, uneven, imbalanced um, support that the defense does not have. But when it becomes a defense witness 
or if it's a situation where the confidential informant is coming back years later and saying, like you said, you know, these things are weighing on my conscience and um, the police coerced me, you know, and I did not see what I, I had uh, testified to previously, then they get the side eye. You know, they get questioned more. Um, they get uh, scrutinized more because they are there for the defense. And not just even, and I'll say this in the confidential informant um, aspect, in any witness. So, so one person's um, case that I know very well, um, he did have a, you know, a, a jailhouse informant actually came to testify against him. And this person was in federal prison and had, you know, done um, some things that were considered horrible and received a 10-year sentence. And the prosecution brought this person in, and, you know, he was able to testify, and, and they didn't question his history and why he was in federal prison for 10 years and his past. question none of that. But the defendant, his alibi witness was his wife, okay? And he was at home and, you know, in bed, sleep overnight with his wife. And when he tried to use his wife as his alibi, well, some years previously, his wife had a um, a, a stealing charge. She had stole some things out of a Walmart. So basically, it was a you know small um, case where she had stole a couple hundred dollars worth of property uh, of products out of a Walmart, and she had a shoplifting uh, history. Right now, she wasn't in jail. She had did a little probation time, you know, around the time that she caught that shoplifting case. But her probation was over. So at the time of the trial, she was not on any probation or parole. But when she got up to be the, the alibi witness for her husband, the prosecution told her a new one. Oh, you're horrible. You steal from stores. And, and if you steal out of Walmart and you do shoplifting, how we know you're here telling the truth? You know, and they, and they took this woman down through all types of stuff. But the person who was in federal prison for 10 years for doing a lot worse, you didn't question him. You didn't, you know, you didn't have these same um, questions and, you know, uh, assumptions about that person, but because she was a defense alibi witness, her shoplifting case from years ago was suddenly the worst thing to ever happen in the whole wide world. So that's, that's, those are the things that happen in court. And unless you are in court, unless you observe these things, unless you truly want to understand and know, these are things that you would, you know, you assume people are innocent, on in prison, or, you know, the system would, would fix that. And once they go to court, the truth will come out. But, no, the courts have a way to suppress evidence, you know, to make the defense look worse, to twist the reality of what happened, and they have a way to get the conviction that they want to get. And that's what happened in his case. That's what happened in, you know, Keith's case. That's what happened in Lamar's case. That's what happened in so many people's cases where the prosecution has honed in on them or the police has honed in on them, and they are going to get the conviction that they seek regardless of if it's actually truth or not. And that is the, uh, you know, sad, the sad reality of our, our criminal legal system. And I, I think it's horrible because it victimizes the person they're using as the confidential informant. It victimizes the defendant in the case. And then it, it turns around and it victimizes the defendant's families, it's horrible. Um, the ill use of a confidential informant literally destroys lives. And if, if you listeners don't hear anything I say, as I'm sitting here doing this interview, I want you to know the use of a confidential informant in an ill way 
destroys lives. And I'm so sorry for getting emotional in this interview, but I want it to be known when a prosecutor or a police officer uses a confidential informant in an ill way, it destroys lives of many people. Many, yeah. many, many people. Michelle? Very much so. Very much. It not only destroys the lives of, you know, the wrongfully convicted person, right? It definitely does that. But also, you know, when you look at the victim and their family, they didn't actually get justice. Um, you know, Lamar Johnson, who, like I said, got out of prison several weeks ago, he was incarcerated for 28 years. And the family of that victim, they did not receive justice. Um, the wrong person was incarcerated. Um, the wrong person was convicted. Their, their loved one, who was, you know, by all accounts, an amazing person, an amazing father, um, he did not receive justice because the, not, the wrong person was incarcerated. Um, and actually the person who did commit that particular crime, because 28 years later, you know, that person is incarcerated um, for other crimes, he went on to kill more people. Actually, he's incarcerated right now for, I, I think, for killing three other people. And he killed those, these people after this particular victim. So that's something else we need to understand. When you ha we have a case where someone is wrongfully convicted, the actual killer is still out harming people. Um, that, that was a famous case about the, uh, we don't know about the Central Park Five. And some years ago, those five youth in New York City were wrongfully convicted for um, um, brutally beating and, and, and sexually assaulting a jogger in Central Park. Well, the person who actually um, did that to her some years later, he was a serial killer in New York, and he actually killed several women in New York City, similar situation, who were jogging through the park, and he grabbed them, beat them, raped them, and killed them. And so because they had these five youth um, in jail and in prison on trial, the actual person that did it was able to keep going and harming other people. So this is what, you know, the, what the system doesn't demand, we actually have truth. The system demands that there be finality and there is a conviction and there is a sentence, not necessarily that there's justice, there's truth, and, you know, that the right person is being held accountable. So it's very devastating to the family, it's devastating to the wrongfully convicted person, and it's devastating to the rest of the community who still has a, um, you know, a basically a killer or someone who, who commits uh, serious harm still running around able to, you know, um, um, inflict this harm on other people. And so these are all of the issues and problems that are, we have when we zone in on a person and we don't actually have the proof um, for their actual guilt. And that is something that, you know, again, it's an epidemic that we need to address, that we need to focus on, um, and that we need to reach across to other people, you know, be it conservatives or liberals or left or right, Democrat, Republic. We need to understand that innocent people should not be incarcerated, and we need to make sure that we're focusing on the persons or person who actually committed the crime. Yes, and you know what? It happens so much. Uh, there was a, an attorney who I wanted to come on with us. Her name is Roisha Ward. Her husband actually is Ramon Ward, um, who was uh, one of the exonerees out of Michigan. And, you know, in her husband's case, when I was reading it, 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 it was just horrible that they utilized a, a, a person 
This person was in jail when her husband was arrested. And he over he was just there when he was arrested. And they used him to testify <laughs> that this man told him these things while looking through a window there at the police department. And it, it was just crazy. Absolutely crazy. Wow, yeah. And her husband, I believe, ended up doing about 26 years, I believe. And she became an attorney as she was fighting to try to get her husband out. So more power to row. I just think that story is awesome. Wow. But, you know, we don't have very long left. And I want to go into talking about the Conviction Integrity Unit bill that is uh-huh. pending. So let us know yeah. a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about that. And then let's go into sure. how important the Conviction Integrity Unit bill is. Sure, definitely, and I appreciate talking about that, and also we're talking about the Conviction Integrity Unit. I wanted to talk about you know, legislation and how we actually get you know, these things move forward. Um, so there is currently a bill in our House, um, House of Representatives, um, to create a statewide Conviction Integrity Unit, and the person who filed it is uh, Representative Lakeisha Bosley. She's a representative out of St. Louis. And we appreciate, you know, Lakeisha's support in these issues of uh, wrongful convictions. Um, and this particular bill will set up a conviction integrity unit statewide that will be comprised of investigators, um, attorneys, prosecution, and defense attorneys. And, and what they would do is receive um, applications from people who are incarcerated who have an innocence claim. Now, we know sometimes people claim innocent and not or not actually innocent. That's, that's going to happen in any you know, situation. So this uh, unit would be tasked with investigating these cases, many of them, you know, years and years old, to see, you know, was the person um, innocent like, you know, Keith and like Lamar? Was there a situation where an informant just came to court and said something and that person was convicted only on that statement? And so the, the bill would set that up as a statewide entity, not just in a certain county, you know, not just in Jackson County or St. Louis County or, or Boone County, it would actually be a statewide unit, um, and they would investigate those cases, and the cases that they determined were, yes, the person is likely innocent, the person, you know, had some type of constitutional violations or some type of other violations of their rights that led to them being wrongfully convicted, and that, uh, that conviction integrity unit would take that case to the local prosecutor where that person was convicted, and, you know, um, go go through the process of asking that uh, prosecution to reopen the case. We also have a, another law that was passed in 2021. Um, it, is, um, it's, it was passed under Senate Bill 53, but right now the law is 547.031. And it actually gives the prosecutors the authority to reopen cases where someone was wrongfully convicted, which is how Mr. Kevin Strickland and Mr. Lamar Johnson were released under that particular law. So this conviction integrity unit is very important. It is something that says, you know, we know that the system is flawed, so let's create a a body, you know, an office that will look into these wrongful convictions and actually come to the truth. And so we definitely support the bill. We support Representative Bosley for filing the bill. Uh, it actually had a hearing last, oh, I think last Wednesday. I can't remember what day. I actually, I went to the hearing. Okay. Last Tuesday, Wednesday, there was a hearing. The hearing went well. Um, actually, in that particular bill, uh, even our uh, prosecutors, uh, the, the Missouri Prosecutor Association, they're on board that, with that bill. So we, we really and hope that will pass now. It's not as 
robust as we would want it to be, but it's a start, and it's more that we have currently in our state. So we, you know, we definitely are um, um, hoping and, you know, praying that the conviction integrity bill does pass and we are one step closer to getting actual innocence for more people who are wrongfully convicted in prison. Well, let me tell you this. You know, um, that is actually how the Casey Freedom Project came on the scene in Kansas City. That was our main mission, was to push for the establishment of a conviction integrity unit um, here in Jackson County, Missouri. That's how we came on the scene. Of course, me being in Dallas and coming out of Dallas, being very active there in Dallas County, underneath Craig Watkins, who was the district attorney who actually implemented the first conviction integrity unit ever, okay? And he was responsible for letting so many people go. Uh, when I came to Missouri and I found out a little bit about Keith's case, it, you know, they were saying, hey, this guy's inside, he's innocent, wrongly convicted. You know, uh, that's when I started pushing for a conviction integrity unit. It took several years, but eventually we ended up with one in Jackson County. And so I can say this. I pray that the right people get behind this bill here that is pending so that we can make this a state issue because a conviction integrity unit is only good as the prosecutor in that county allows it to have. Now, when I look at the conviction integrity unit in Gene Peters Baker, we have one person, Kevin Strickland, who was released under that law. He's the only person. Gene Peters Baker's conviction integrity unit has done absolutely zilch. Zero, not a squat for anyone, okay? And the sad thing is, everyone saw my husband walk out of prison on national news April 11, 2022. Everyone saw him. But what people didn't know is that we went to Gene Peters Baker's office, Dion Sanker, Dan Nelson, Gene Peters Baker, and submitted the very same paperwork that was submitted in the court to the Missouri Supreme Court judges that resulted in Keith Carnes' release. Jean Peters Baker and her entire team, even after they established her conviction integrity unit, did absolutely nothing. So how is it the same paperwork, the same evidence, the same affidavit that had to be presented to the Missouri Supreme Court for Keith Carnes to get any relief, were not honored, looked at, respected, valued, or anything in our local conviction integrity unit here in Jackson County, Missouri. So I totally agree with you, and anyone who just heard what I said, okay, need to get behind this bill, because that's illegitimate, that is legitimate proof that our conviction integrity unit in Jackson County, Missouri is not, or let me say it the way I want to say it, ain't nothing because if they were yeah. if they were walking in integrity if they cared about justice why did they leave key cards in prison an additional three years and the missouri supreme court had to step up walk in integrity do what was right and let that man out of prison so yes mm -hmm. this bill this yeah. is very very important because guess what we got a lot of Keith Carnes still in prison. We got a lot of Ricky Kids still in prison. We got a lot of Kevin Strickland, Maurice Davis. We got a lot of them, um, uh, Michael Silas. We got all of them still in prison. And those are all Jackson County cases that I just called down. We got a lot of Ken Middletons in prison. Jackson County cases that our local yeah. prosecutor 
will not either they didn't do anything about it or they're not presently doing anything about it, Michelle. And it's sad. Yeah. And any taxpayer in Jackson County, Missouri, you need to know it's sad. You need to know it's sad that we taxpayers are being victimized because we have elected officials in place who do not hold and stand up to their ethical, ethical responsibilities. Not just ethical responsibilities, but things that they swore to, things that they vowed to. So this is stuff that, you know, us people, we got to look at this, people. We've got to start addressing these issues, and this is one way to do it, is to get this type of unit established in our state here in Missouri. You know, I you know what? That, if you can get um, that unit, Latar, that'll for sure make us a show me state like That'll do it. It's more of... It's more of a political function, right? And I know that, you know, Gene Peters Baker's office is very problematic. Even in St. Louis, you know, um, our St. Louis County yeah, prosecutor has minutes, not actually left. helped anyone get out of prison, um, even though, you know, even though he has had his conviction integrity unit for several years. So I think the CIU bill for statewide would take away some of that um, political centering because a prosecutor, we need to understand, it's a political office, right? It's not just a, a, a situation where they're just out for the best. It is a political office. They have career um, ambitions to further so, their career. They're going um, to, you know, they have certain people in a few seconds. And, so, and things let that they need to close focus out. on, you know, to get reelected, right? So yes. it is a political function. And with this CIU bill, we would take it away from being solely um, the the position of a political um, elected official in a certain county and, right. and make it statewide. Right. So, yes, you are correct. Okay. It's definitely Michelle, on necessary. that note, we're going to close out. I thank you for coming okay. on the show. I think you had some pretty good content for the show today. Everyone, thank, thank you. you for tuning in to KKFI 90.1 FM. I'm your host, Latara Smith. You were listening to Michelle Smith. We thank you. Please share the broadcast. I think others will be blessed. It's the 420 Drug War News, and this is the Drug Truth Network editorial in response to a recent New York Times editorial. You know, it was just about eight, nine days ago, the New York Times had a uh, major editorial. Um, It was titled up, America has lost the war on drugs. Here's what needs to happen next. Quote, I was thrilled and astounded to see a recent editorial challenging our nation's second attempt at eternal prohibition. You were stating America has lost the war on drugs. It was even more astounding to see what reasons, in fact, horrors of prohibition you failed to address. Your editorial mentions the tough on crime tactics of every president from Nixon to the Bushes, yet fails to make note of the machinations of the U.S. Congress back in those days, with many of the tough new laws being brought to the floor by then-Senator Joe Biden. You state that we need to reverse course to stop the record number of overdose deaths, that we need to restore public health to the center. The Swiss have done this with pure heroin. Users sign on to the government-sponsored program, visit a clinic twice a day to inject pure heroin, and then spend the rest of the day going to work, going to school, or raising their children. This program has been in place for more than 20 years. Users have injected heroin more than 20 million times, and for those staying with the program, have suffered 
zero overdose deaths. You do praise Biden as president for taking incremental steps in the right direction. What you do not state is that treatment is not for everybody, as the millions of Swiss have proven. Our great fear of drugs and drug users has been overblown and fed to the news media, to police, politicians, and ministers by profiteers, some of whom are paid representatives of the cartels who reap billions of dollars each year by convincing the U.S. to be very afraid to continue embracing a policy of eternal prohibition. Seeking to amend old policies, you state criminal justice still has a role to play in tackling addiction and overdose, to which I must ask, in what way, how has criminal justice ever tackled addiction or overdose deaths? Why can we not just return to how it used to be before this prohibition, to simply judge people by their actions, not the contents of their pocket or purse? Even when alcohol was illegal, you could still possess it or imbibe it legally. Only the sale was forbidden. You address the biggest horror of the drug war with your study the solutions idea for government health officials and even for the public to to come to terms with prejudices that developed towards drug users over the decade. Until such times that people rid themselves of this fear that drug user equals sinner equals prisoner mentality, the cartels will thrive, the caravans will drive northward, gangs will prowl our neighborhoods with high-powered weapons, jails will overflow, trillions of dollars will be squandered, and the overdose death toll will continue to rise. I am Dean at DrugTruth.net. enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 